Good morning. Take your copies of God's Word and turn to Romans chapter 9, verse 30. Romans chapter 9, verse 30. And happy Mother's Day, by the way. I have grown to appreciate Mother's Day more and more every single year. My wife and I, Savannah, have two little girls. One's five and one is two. Uh, And I get to see motherhood in all of its fury every single day. Uh, And it is Savannah's uh, full-time occupation to care for those little girls and for me. Um, And we are appreciative, of course. Uh, But I I truly believe that there is no more uh, noble calling, no higher work uh, than the work of a saved, uh, heaven-bound, praying mother in her home with her kids. Uh, Day after day, week after week, uh, God sees you and he sees the work that you're doing. um, And he will no doubt, without a doubt, reward you for it uh, when you get to heaven. Let's turn to our text now. Uh, Just follow along with me as I begin reading here. Romans chapter 9, verse 30. Paul says, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own They did not submit to God's righteousness, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Over the last couple of weeks, we have been wading through some pretty deep theological waters in the ninth chapter of Romans. Paul has been laboring in the doctrines of election and predestination and assurance of salvation and those types of things. He has talked about God's choosing of Jacob over Esau, even before they were born. He has talked about God raising up Pharaoh only to destroy him. And when he poses anticipated questions regarding these matters, he sharply rebukes the reader and reminds us that we are the molded, not the molder, and that God will have mercy on whomever he wills. And he'll withhold it from whoever he wills. He reminds us that God, before our birth, before we had done anything, either good or bad, predestined us. That eventually he called us, justified us, and glorified us, all so that we can be conformed to the image of his son. And for some of you, including myself, these doctrines are exhilarating. You love these precious doctrines. You enjoy the theological exercise of it all. You have grown in your understanding of these topics, and it gives you confidence. It gives you assurance. It gives you peace, and that is absolutely wonderful. I am right there with you. I love these portions of Scripture. They have boosted my faith, as I'm sure they have yours, in absolutely unimaginable ways. Praise God for them. Some of you, however, have had a tough time 
You're not entirely comfortable yet with all of this election stuff. And you don't exactly understand how it all works just yet. You're trying, but you just need some more time. You need some more study. You need more prayer. Or maybe you've got family members or friends or even children that you are worried about. Because you're not so sure about their eternal standing with God yet. You're wondering what this all means for them. You're wondering what their fate will be. And what, if anything, can be done about it. And for some of you, you may even be asking these questions about yourself. And if that is you, if you are still wrestling with Romans 9, that is okay. Okay? I don't want you to worry. Don't throw in the towel just yet. Paul is not done. And as we finish up chapter 9 today and begin to dip our toes into chapter 10, Paul is going to answer some of those questions. Now let me make this clear before we continue. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Salvation is entirely of God by grace alone through faith alone. God alone institutes that change. He carries it the whole way and he brings it to completion all by his own sovereign power. God gets all the credit for our salvation. And that's what Romans 9 has been about. However, that being true, we still have a responsibility, a cooperation in salvation. And it is to that part of the equation that Paul now turns his attention at the end of chapter 9. Paul begins by saying, what shall we say then? If, if God is sovereign in election, if salvation is wholly up to God, if he institutes it, produces it, and brings it to completion, then what do we do? What is our responsibility? How do we respond to that? Paul is going to use an example. The example he's going to use is Israel's rejection of Jesus Christ as the Messiah and the Gentiles' embracing of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. He's going to use that as an example here to answer some of these questions. Look in verse 30. He says, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. So here Paul differentiates between two groups of people, Gentiles and Israel. Israel was and is currently God's very special people. They have been set apart by him. They have been chosen by him, used by him to display his magnificent glory. It was Israel who witnessed all these magnificent miracles that we see in the Old Testament. It was Israel who was rescued repeatedly at God's hand from oppression and destruction. It was Israel who received the oracles of God on Mount Sinai and who entered into covenant with him and agreed to obey his law, to be consecrated, to be holy. It was Israel who produced the prophets, who produced the psalmists and the priests. And their entire lives revolved around appeasing God. Every aspect of their day-to-day -day routine, of their government, of their worship, of their conduct, revolved around strict adherence to God's law. 
And it was this lifestyle, it was this law that was supposed to lead them to the Messiah. And they eagerly awaited his arrival. They anxiously awaited the day when the Messiah would come, when he would usher in the kingdom of God and bring peace and bring glory to Israel. Yet, when he finally arrived, they resisted him. On the other hand, the Gentiles were pagans. They were without God. They did not adhere to God's law. They did not worship the one true God. They did not strive after holiness. Surely they thought to live moral, ethical, sound, good lives, but they didn't seek to live lives that were pleasing to the one true God. They weren't concerned with the things of God. They weren't concerned with heaven, and they surely weren't awaiting the arrival of a Messiah. Yet when he showed up, It was they who so readily embraced him. Verse 32, Paul says, why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. So why did this happen? Why did the Jews, whose entire system and worldview was built around God's law, who had access to every prophecy ever written about the Messiah, whose entire lives were committed to God and to his commandments, how did they miss the mark? How did they fall short? How did they not achieve true righteousness? How did they not submit to the Messiah? Paul tells us plainly, they pursued righteousness as if it were based on works. And Paul gives credit where credit is due. He says they were pursuing righteousness. They were pursuing righteousness. In fact, they were more zealous for righteousness than any people that have ever lived. But they did not pursue it by faith. They pursued it by works. They relied on their own efforts to try and satisfy God's law instead of accepting and relying on Christ. The Gentiles, however, they had nothing to offer. They had no works to rely on. They came broken and needy and wanting. They could not rely on their nationality or their heritage or their offerings or their sacrifices or their obedience. They had none of those things. They were disobedient and they knew it. All they had was their need for a savior. All they had was their sinfulness. All they had was their desire to be saved. All they had was their faith. Faith that Jesus would be and is enough for them. That he could do what they did not know. That he alone could save them. But why was this righteousness, righteousness by faith alone, so difficult for the Jews to accept? Why was Jesus so difficult for them to accept? After all, Jesus said his yoke is easy and his burden is light, and we know that the burden of the law was heavy. Why did they not accept him? How could they possibly reject him? Look in verse 32. Paul says, they've stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the reason that Israel is currently being rejected by God is because Israel has rejected Jesus. Plain and simple. You see, the Jews were appalled by the gospel of grace. 
because it nullified all the good works that they had relied on to please God. Their worth was found in their works. Their righteousness, they thought, was based on their performance. And several years before Paul wrote to the church at Rome, he wrote to the church at Corinth saying, For Jews demand signs and Greeks wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. And here, Paul quotes the same from Isaiah, that Christ is a stumbling block to the Jews. You see, long before Christ showed up on scene, the Lord had predicted through the prophets that Israel would reject him. And consistent with God's word, that is exactly what happened. They rejected Christ because he did not fit their expectations of what the Messiah would look like and because he declared all their works to be worthless. Jesus pointed out their works are not able to save them. Jesus pointed out that they were self righteous. Jesus pointed out their sin and they would have none of it. Instead of shedding this yoke of the law from their backs and throwing themselves at the feet of Jesus, they clung to their works. They held on to them. Their sin was one of pride and it was a sin of self-righteousness and it continues to this day. So earlier in Romans 9, Paul said that Israel rejected Jesus because God made a sovereign choice that they would do so. And here he says that Israel rejected Jesus because they freely made the choice to do so. Yet even that choice was predicted long ago by the prophets. So the point Paul is making is this. God's prerequisite for salvation by faith, does not conflict with or violate his divine choice in the matter. God's demand for faith by those whom he saves does not nullify his sovereignty. And likewise, the lack of faith by those whom he chooses not to save does not nullify his sovereignty. So there seems to be this, this tension or maybe even what may seem to be a contradiction between those two realities. And by our human reasoning, those two things should be mutually exclusive. Either God makes the choice for us, or we make the choice ourselves. But both of these things, God's sovereign election and the human decision made by faith, are both clearly taught in God's word. Both are true. God cannot save a person who does not believe in his son. And a person cannot save himself simply by the act of his own will. In God's sovereign order, both his gracious provision and the exercise of man's will are both required for salvation. And like many truths in scripture, these two truths cannot be fully understood by our flawed human reason, but only accepted by faith. Their interworking is a mystery. It's a mystery to us. So how much time and effort do we put into trying to resolve this tension? Should we attempt to fully understand how God can be both sovereign and salvation, and yet how we also have the freedom to choose him? Yes, absolutely yes. 
It is for the glory of God that we seek to understand these things. Proverbs 25 verse 2 says, It is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. Yet they are a mystery, and that's okay. It's okay that they're hard to understand. We can glorify God in this mystery. It is a divine reminder to us that his ways are higher than our ways. His understanding is greater than our understanding. And praise God that it is. Look in verse 1. Paul says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Paul did not have a cold response to God's election. It did not make him indifferent towards the lost, and it did not cause him to lose hope for those who had rejected Christ. On the contrary, it motivated him to pray for their salvation. And Paul was not making a hopeless plea that he didn't expect God to answer. He prayed because he fully believed, he fully believed that God would save all of Israel. That no matter how seemingly unlikely, the people of Israel could be saved and that they would place their trust in their Messiah and Savior. And Paul was just responding to the commission to the apostles that Jesus gave before his ascension when he said, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And remember, back in chapter 1 of Romans, Paul said, The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. So instead of trying to reconcile this seeming incongruity between election and faith here, Paul reminds us, God alone knows who will be saved. It is his secret choice, and it is our responsibility. It's not our responsibility to determine who God has chosen, but only to proclaim the gospel to everyone who will hear it and praying for them all along the way. Look in verse 2. Paul says, For I bear them witness, that is Israel, that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Again, Paul gives them credit here. They do have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. It's not according to Jesus Christ. Their zeal is for their own works. Their zeal is for their lineage. It's for themselves. They have missed the mark. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. The only righteousness that God accepts is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And there is a righteousness that God rejects, and that is self-righteousness. When a man tries to be righteous by just being a nice person or by doing good deeds or even just by avoiding sin, God rejects that righteousness. Isaiah 64 verse 6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Now, why why would God say that? Because he is holy. God can tolerate no sin, none whatsoever. And at best, the very best a man can do, he's still sinful. The very best a man can do, 
is still not enough. You cannot keep the whole law of God. And even if you kept most of it, what good would that do? If you were hanging over a fire by a chain of 10 links and nine of them were of forged steel and one of them was made of paper, what good would that do? That's the reason God says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. God demands perfection, and we simply cannot supply it on our own. So Israel was predetermined to reject Christ, and today Israel continues to reject Christ by her own free will, free choice, and lack of faith. Both are true, and both are of equal importance in understanding Israel's failure to find righteousness. And both are of equal importance in understanding our friends and our family members or our children's failure to find righteousness. And I will reiterate, it is of the utmost importance that we spend the time and the effort to try and understand this mystery, this divine truth. We should never cast it aside, and we should never treat it as though it were some theological evil or trick bag just because it's difficult to digest or difficult to understand. We must spend the time meditating on these truths and praying for understanding. And as, as important as it is to do that, it is of equal importance to focus on what we can readily know and readily grab from this text. So let's do that. First, we build on Jesus. We build on Jesus. What does verse 4 say? It says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Paul told us the Gentiles obtained righteousness by what? By faith. It was their belief in Jesus Christ as their only hope for salvation that allowed them to obtain righteousness. And why is that? Well, the Gentiles had nothing to offer. No lineage, no sacrifices, no law, just sin. They were inherently sinful and they knew it. You see, the righteousness that the Gentiles obtained, that Paul is talking about, was not their own. It was the righteousness of Christ. It's what's called Christ's imputed righteousness. Diedrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And in a sense, that's easier for the Gentile because his old life, the sinful deeds of his past, mean nothing for him. They do nothing for him. They prove nothing for him. Putting that old man to death and putting on that new man that Paul talks about in Ephesians, it was a joy to them. They were excited to do that. It was a relief. And every believer who comes to saving faith in Christ has to do that same thing. We bring nothing. Nothing except the sins that we need saving from. We have no claim to righteousness of our own. But instead we rely wholly and completely 
on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So we either build our lives on that foundation, we either build our lives on Jesus Christ, or we stumble over Jesus. We stumble over Jesus. The error of the Jews, what caused them to stumble, was their self-righteousness. They believed that they could live their lives in a way which would justify their acceptance by God. And we hear that, we believers, we hear that and we think, that's crazy. What, what in the world would ever make them think that they could live up to that standard? What in the world would ever make them think that they could live lives that were good enough to be accepted by God? But we sometimes do the same thing, don't we? Sometimes we, born-again believers, can even lose sight of what is our hope in salvation. It may be subtle, it may be subtle, but even we can sometimes just slip into a reliance on ourselves, slip into a lifestyle of self-righteousness. And sometimes, sometimes we live our lives as though, although we were saved, although we trusted in Jesus, we almost live sometimes as if it's up to us to currently maintain that. We get in our own heads and we live as though it's, it's up to us to continue our salvation. And we begin to justify our standing with God on our works and what we believe is our good, obedient nature and our good, obedient lives. We must be on the lookout for this, folks. We must be on the lookout for it. We must daily take stock of our souls and remind ourselves of the desperate need we have for Jesus and that if he has saved us, we're saved forever. We don't have to work to maintain it. We work to honor him. We don't work to maintain anything. And we must come each and every day to the foot of the cross as beggars. We must daily put our sinful flesh to death and put on the likeness of Christ. We must saturate our minds every second of every day with scripture and with prayer in constant reminder of the very great lengths that God has gone to to save us from our sin, mainly the sacrifice of his one and only son. So we either build on Jesus or we stumble over Jesus. And if you are a believer, if you've been made new by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, build on him. He is your cornerstone. Put on the righteousness of Christ every day intentionally. And don't forget where you came from. Don't forget what you were saved from. Don't forget what God has done to bring you to this point. And praise him every day for the great work that he has done. And if you have a loved one who is rejecting Christ, resisting the gospel, like Paul, pray for them. Pray for them. Be a good witness. Love them. Share Christ with them. And leave the saving up to God. Pray with all your might. As long as they're alive and breathing, there is some hope for them. There's some hope for them. Persevere in your prayers. God hears them. If you're here and you don't know 
Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you've spent your entire life relying on yourself, I tell you, however good of a person you may be, you are not good enough. You're not good enough. There is no amount of good deeds that you can do that will satisfy the wrath of God. None. There is only one who has lived a sinless life. There is only one who was righteous enough, and his name is Jesus. And all you have to do is place your faith in him, repent of your sin, accept him. And he loves you so much. Jesus Christ loves you so much that he came down to earth, took the form of a man in the flesh, lived a sinless life that you could not live, died a sacrificial death that you could never die, and he did that all for you individually. He had you in mind individually when he died on that cross. And all he wants to do is when he wants to know you and he wants you to know him and he wants to spend eternity with you and he wants you to spend eternity with him in paradise forever. And let me tell you, if you're considering it, it is worth it. Don't wait another day to receive the joy that comes with knowing Jesus Christ. There is no reason to wait.